That's what we're hoping for is unleashing the power of God in this day and in this year. And I've called this first sermon on prayer. There's several sermons coming from just great stories in the Bible where God moved because of prayer that I'm going to be sharing about in the next several weeks. But I'm calling this when he crowns the year with his favor. And it comes right from the scriptures, Psalm 6511. You crown the year with your goodness and your paths drip with abundance. I believe that 2013 is going to be an incredible year of harvest. I think that's what the Lord wants for us, for this community. How are we going to see it? How are we going to see a great awakening beyond what we've ever seen before, beyond what we've, we've experienced? How are we going to see what the Bible and others call revival? Well, we're going to pray like we've never prayed. This is what I hope for as we go into this time and as we come out. I hope that we unleash the favor of the Lord in a great way as our hearts are united with His because we pray. And I hope when we come out of it that we know that you, I'm talking about you and me, that we know how to pray better than we've ever prayed before. That our discipline increases in such a way that we don't even walk the same way we used to walk because His power is greater in us. I'm asking the Lord to teach us how to pray. That's what the Bible says, in even a greater way than we've ever known. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for your will. You show people, God, in your word, your will, and then you direct even the specific steps of our lives, even the specific steps of a church, God, your church. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would come today and that you would begin a work in us that is dynamic and amazing, and the only explanation can be God is doing great things. Let it be, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. If we want to unleash God among us, we need to do the following. This is one of the great passages of Scripture in the Bible where God was speaking to the children of Israel. It was written to them, but if we're children of God, it's written to us too. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Humble ourselves and pray and seek His face. If we want to see Him move among us in a great way, there's a prescription for it in the Bible. 2 Chronicles 7, 14 says just that. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Called by his name, that would be us. We are his. We are his children. Humble ourselves. That's to say, I want you to think of yourself now, because I'm thinking of myself. I can't do it on my own. Anything that's really powerful that would be unleashed in my life, I can't make it happen on my own. And that may seem like a small thing, but you've been trained as a Western American to be self-sufficient. Pull up your bootstraps. Get it done. Work hard. Those things are good. They're not bad. Faith without works is dead. But that is not how the amazing power of God is unleashed because of increased activity. Because you can be doing all those things hard and they're the wrong things. I can't do it. You can't do it. Your best efforts can't make it happen. Our best efforts, my best efforts are weak compared to his work. So what we say is, I need you, Lord. What if we started out with 2013, instead of being so self-sufficient... We started out by saying, Lord, I need you 
to show me the way, to move in my life, to show me what you've willed for my life. He asks us in that passage to humble ourselves, and in 1 Peter 5, it says this, humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. The beauty of coming to him is we find the beauty of his presence. That when we humble ourselves and say, God, we need you, we unleash his power in our lives. My dad used to say when I was growing up and he would preach all the time, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. Have you ever heard that before? And he meant this, God won't violate your will. You have a free will. And if you want to do it on your own, he'll let you. He doesn't want you to have to do it on your own. But when we humble ourselves, he comes and he lifts us up. And when he says lift up, I want you to know it's beyond what you could ever do, this lifting up that God does. You say, why would these things be important? Do you have a son or a daughter who doesn't know the Lord? Do you have a relationship that's broken somewhere and not working right? Do you have a job situation where there's a struggle? I mean, there's so many areas in life that God wants to touch and to help us, but we need to humble ourselves and look to him. And that's what these weeks of fasting and prayer are about. Now, in a way, we know this, but we're so slow as believers to ask for his direction, for his power. It seems that often it's it's our last resort. Well, I guess I'm going to have to go to God. That's what it's come to. I read a story this week about something that happened in Canada. A diver drifted 10 kilometers with the tide as dozens of people desperately searched. They couldn't find him. And he died in part because his friends delayed calling for help. The dive boat waited... um, His partners, rather, in the dive boat waited an hour and 45 minutes to call for help, and it was too late. The tide had swept him away, and when the rescue team found him, he, he had died. They tried to search for him themselves, and the marine controller, Mark Perlou, said, maybe they were embarrassed, I don't know. But I don't think they're his best buddies by now. That was, they, those were his words. And the Canadian Coast Guard had this advice for people after that event. Call us quickly. The quicker the better. Calling for help as soon as possible is always a good idea. Especially when it comes to unleashing God in our lives. Let's not make it the last resort. Let's just put it right, in 2013, let's just put it right up front and say, God, what do you want for me, for us now? God, unleash your power that my child might come to you and serve you with all their heart. How far do we have to drift before we call on God to help us? And then it said in that passage, as, as it's talking about prayer, to seek his face. And I think Americans are confused about this. I think we are asking him too much for stuff. And we've even been taught by a lot of TV preachers to make it about the stuff because the stuff shows that you're really blessed. That, re- that just really bugs me. I, I know they're well-intentioned. I believe they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, but, but this is the time that I get to speak about what I feel is balanced. That's what preachers do. 
If you make your life all about stuff, you're going to miss the call that he has on your life. The Son of Man, think of this. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, the Son of Man had no place to lay his head at night and he laid it on a rock. He took up a cross. We know what the cross is, right? The cross signified pain for our behalf and our welfare. And God would call us at times to sacrifice it well, even as the one who leads us did, the great captain, the prince of peace. He sacrificed on our behalf. And God, when we come close to him, will lead us to do things like that, sacrifice on his behalf. But when we follow his will, he's unleashed in an incredible way and his power moves and people are saved and lives are changed and bodies get healed even, things like that. But we've been taught instead of to seek his face, to seek his hands in America. I want more stuff as if that would satisfy us. And I think you know by now, most of you, that, that things in life, material things, don't really truly satisfy. They help a little bit for the moment, but not in the long run. Character will be developed in our lives when we stop seeking the presence with the T and start seeking his presence with the C. We've come out of this season where we just exchange gifts and presents because Jesus is the King of King and we're celebrating that. But even, even his presence with the sea is lost because of the presence with the T in that season too often. We make it about family relationship and making sure you know I love you. But it really was about Jesus, right, and his birth. That's what it was supposed to be about. Well, let's just translate that into all year long that if we will seek his presence during this season, these next 20 days of fasting and prayer. He'll be in an unleashed, I believe, in a great way. There are two different approaches to prayer. And the first is, Lord, give me what I want. I want this now. And because you love me, you will give it to me. How must that, how, what if your three-year-old came to you and said that to you? I know you like me a lot, so you must give me what I want. Every time I want it. How... You know that you can't give them everything they want because it wouldn't be good for them. I know if my mother had given me what I wanted, I would have eaten candy 24-7. I just would have when I was a kid. And we, we don't really know what we need sometimes. We really don't. We know what we want. But what we want is not always good for us. The Bible calls us sheep. I don't know if you've been around sheep much, but they don't seem hugely intelligent. And... We need to be dependent on following our Father's way rather than telling the Father to follow us. Follow me, Lord, as I do my thing. Don't ask him to bless what you're doing. Do what he's blessing. And Americans, we ask him to bless what we're doing. This is what I want to do. This is how I want you to bless me. I remember years ago I prayed for a young woman and I, and I felt the Lord was really leading me as I prayed, even prophetically. But I don't think she liked the direction of the prayer because it had to do with some change in her heart. And it wasn't harsh or hard, but, but it was definitely there. And I believe the Lord was giving her something. But we got done and at the altar she said to me, now can I pray as well? And I said, well, sure. And she said, Lord, I pray you'd give it to me the way I want it and help it to happen the way I want it to happen. And I had a little counseling session with her after we were done. And you know what, she, she didn't follow the will of the Lord in her life and she hurt others and hurt herself in the next few years. 
And ultimately, if you know God, you want what he wants because he only wants the best for you. He's not going to lead you to a worse place. He's going to lead you to a better place. He's not going to lead you to a mediocre place. He's going to lead you to the best place for your life. Donnie will be with us next week, and one of the sayings he says that I love so much is he didn't come to take away your fun, he came to take away your pain. He loves you. C.S. Lewis says it this way for people who would pray this way. Do, we, do you think that we regard God as an airman regards his parachute? It's there for emergency, but he hopes you'll never have to use it. And I fear that our prayer comes down to, Lord, give me what I want, but also, well, I need something now. I'm desperate, but we're not in communion with him in between those times. And then here's the other approach. <clears throat> prayer. Some people, pray, some people believe that prayer is to move God, but I believe that in prayer, God moves us to the right things. So the second form of prayer would be, Lord, what do you want? So let me take it to my own life. Lord, what do you want from, from me? What do you want for me to do today, tomorrow, this year? Where do you want to move your people to, Lord? <clears throat> because ultimately, <clears throat> I'm following him. That's my goal. I mean, I kind of look at it as a picture. As I, I don't get in front of Jesus and tell him where this church is going. I try to get right behind him and say, where are you going, Jesus? I want to stay right with you. <clears throat> and if we take that to our lives, where are you going, Jesus? I want to go right with you. I want to jump in right behind you. You lead, and I'll follow. I read about a revival this week, and I want to read the story to you. It happened in 1857. This is a remarkable story. There was a 46-year-old man named Jeremiah Lamphere, <clears throat> excuse me, who lived in New York City. Jeremiah loved the Lord tremendously, <clears throat> but he didn't feel that he could do much for the Lord until he began to feel a burden for the loss and accepted an invitation from his church to be an inner-city missionary in New York. So in July of 1857, he started walking up and down the streets of New York, passing out tracts and talking to people about Jesus. But he wasn't having any success. And I, I don't know that I'd recommend that today, just passing out a track and, and letting the track do the work. I know the Lord can use that, but it doesn't seem to be tremendously effective today. Then God put it on his heart to try prayer. <clears throat> Jeremiah Lamphere, 46 years old, 1857, New York City. Passing out tracks, not working. The Lord moved his heart and said, Pray. So this time he printed up some tracts about prayer and he passed them out and told everybody where he'd be when the prayer started. He invited anyone who wanted to come to the third floor of the Old North Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street in New York City from 12 to 1 on Wednesday to pray. And after passing out all those invitations, hundreds and hundreds of flyers, putting up posters everywhere he could, Wednesday came and at noon no one showed up. So Jeremiah knelt down to pray by himself. 30 minutes later, <clears throat> five people walked through the door and they prayed with him. The next week, 20 people came. I just think of it, he started by himself with this burden, five and then 20 that next week. I mean, that's good growth, right? But you won't believe what happened. 
The next week, between 30 and 40 people came. Then they decided to meet every day from 12 to 1 to pray for the city. Before long, a few ministers started coming and they said, we need to start this at our churches. Within six months, there were over 5,000 prayer groups meeting every day in New York City. Well, that's a pretty good story right there. We could end it and say 5,000 prayer groups and one guy. And you know what I think the beauty of this story was? He wasn't a preacher. He was just a guy who had this burden to say, I want the Lord to be unleashed in my city, in my world. So 5,000 prayer groups in New York City, but soon the word spread all over the country about the prayer groups in Washington, or rather in, in New York City. And prayer groups were started in Philadelphia and Detroit, where they were praying every day at noon during the week. And Washington, D.C., in fact, President Franklin Pierce, the President of the United States, started going almost every day to noonday prayer. By 1859, not quite two years later, 15,000 cities in America were having downtown prayer meetings every day at noon, and thousands were being brought to Christ. And Jeremiah Lamphere started it on his knees by himself listening to the heart of God. One man who was moved to pray. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. Lord, what do you want me to do? I believe that he would say to us today, Lord, what do you want me to do? I want you to pray more. Maybe there's someone here who's got their prayer life so completely together you don't need to grow in it, but I doubt it. And then, so we're talking about revival. Humble yourself, seek my face, my face, not my hands, my face, and pray. But then he said this. Now I want you to notice that when he says this, he's not talking about the world. He's talking about the church. And turn from their wicked ways. Turn from our wicked ways. That's what he says to his church, to his people, not to the people of the world. You think, and I have thought too often, that the key to revival in our nation is our wicked, sinner, unbelieving people changing their hearts because they're ruining our nation. But God says the key to our nation, the key to our community is the church turning from their wicked ways. As if we're looking for a better grade of sinner to bring in, you know. They have to get clean before we bring them in. God says, clean yourselves up. I'm here for you. I can help you. But you're hanging on to things I don't want you to hang on to. You're allowing things in your life that you say that it's okay, but I say it's not. Turn from your wicked ways. Here it is in the New Testament, Colossians 3.5. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do, nothing, let me emphasize, nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. Now, people have just completely taken the wrath and the anger of God. Now listen, God's God's wrath and his anger is always against things that destroy and wound his creation. But he has wrath and anger against things that destroy you. 
And he knows that the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy you, and he's deceiving. And someday, God will unleash his righteous anger towards the one who's brought destruction, and the enemy will be obliterated, the devil. But God says, even to us, listen, I want you to recognize, I want these things out of your life. They're obstructions to the beauty of what I want to unleash in your life. And look what it says about sin. You used to do these things. But now the church in America says everybody's a sinner and we just all sin and he loves us anyway. Well, he loves you. Just like you'd love your child if they sinned greatly against you. But he's not happy about it. If your child wants to do drugs, does it stop you from loving them? No, it shouldn't because you're, you're going to love them unconditionally. You're always going to love them. Do you, do you want that out of their life and root it away? Yes, because you know it's hurting and wounding and eventually it'll get them. You know that. Well, God knows that about sin too. And he wants us to know that these are things that should be behind us, not beside us. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other. For you've stripped off your old sinful nature. You know, uh, let me just stop and talk about dirty language and you too for just a minute. Bono, you know, he does a worship thing and his thing, and that's, hey, I'm happy for that, right? But it's still, it's still, you know, a couple million to bring him in if you want to bring him for anything, and the church can't get him for any less. And still, he uses the F word in those settings when he, when he does his worship things. And I don't doubt that he's a believer, but I'm telling you, why doesn't this stuff matter to people today? I don't get it. What, why is it that you say he'll love me anyway, and I can just do whatever I want to do? Listen, God loves you. Now I want you to catch this, but he will not bless your sin. He will not. And the consequences of your sin will still fall on you. I remember when a young man took a big chunk of concrete here in Oregon and down near Woodburn, he threw it off a bridge and it went through a window and smashed a lady in her face and she had to have reconstructive surgery and almost died. I remember that a youth pastor went to visit that kid in prison and that kid came to Jesus Christ. And I was happy for that because there's a lot of misery in him to be doing those things. But because he was so careless and uncaring about what he did, even though he came to Jesus, do you know what happened to him? He was incarcerated for several years afterwards because he did something that really wounded others and he paid the price for it. And God will not bless your sin even when you come to him. You'll still pay consequences and have pain and hurt and heartache and difficulty and trouble and then cry out, God, where are you? And God's saying, I tried to tell you, don't cross that line. But you didn't want to listen to me. Just like you tell your kids, don't, if you cross that boundary, you could be hurt. Think about it in those moments because the rest of your life could be affected in this one little decision. And they cross the line and they get hurt. Do you love them less? No, you love them, but you go, oh my word. I love them so much I tried to help them and they wouldn't listen. And I think that that's the way God feels about America right now. I love them so much I tried to help them, but they're not listening. I want to cover them, but they want to run away from my covering to whatever they want to do. 
And he lets us exercise our free will. But he says, don't lie to each other for you've stripped off your old nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. And that's our goal is to become more and more like him. America's so-called Christians have a problem these days and it's, it's, it's this, the American church. We don't value purity anymore. Generally. There's a bunch of righteous people, don't get me wrong. There's a bunch of churches doing it right, don't get me wrong. Predominantly in America as, a Christ, as Christians and as a church, the people who call themselves the believers of God, we do not value purity anymore. And we're suffering in our personal lives because of that. You, you think about the man who didn't listen to the word of God and crossed that line and started going to lunch with that woman. Then he made a call and then he visited with her and then he slept with her and all the while thinking about his family at home and all the while thinking, well, God is forgiving and he's loving. But then you think about the brokenness when it's discovered. You think about what God was trying to keep him from. You think about the way he was separated from his family, the way he was alienated from his children, the brokenness. All of this because we have not valued purity. We say he's forgiving. He'll forgive you. He'll love you, but you will pay consequences for your sin. The Bible says, be sure your sins will find you out. I'm not preaching this because I want people to sin or because I want them to feel bad. The only motive I have, I believe, is the motive of the heart of God to love, protect, and bless you. The Bible is so beautiful because it shows us where those boundaries of safety are. It's a loving God who says, this is safe. God's not against sex. He created sex. He created it pleasurable. I think he knew what he was doing. He's not against sex, but there's boundaries that when you cross it, the marriage, the union between a man and a woman, when you cross those boundaries, no matter who you are, no matter what you say, you don't like God, you spit in his face, you say, I love God, but God loves me, whatever the excuse for your sin is, when you cross those boundaries, you get hurt. I discovered that as a prodigal. There were so many rules in our house We might have had more rules than God has. We probably did. But the heart and the motive was right with my parents. But I got out on my own in college and I wanted to do my own thing. And believe me, I loved my parents and I honored them when I was in the home. But my heart wasn't evidently where it should have been because the moment I got out of their home, I strayed. And I'm a pastor who stands before you not as a self-righteous Man who thinks he knows everything and has done everything right. I stand before you as a guy who crossed the boundaries and got hurt because of his own sin. And when I looked at it, when I look back, I got, I got suspended from a Christian college for my behavior. A guy met me out here on the football field a couple years ago, went to college with me, and he said, you're the pastor there? <clears throat> and I said, yeah. And he said, do those people know about you in college? I said, well, I've shared a few times. Not every little detail, but they know I was a prodigal. I said, oh, there is a God, I'll tell you that. 
<clears throat> but you know it too. You cross those boundaries, you get hurt. They're not to keep you from fun, they're to keep you from pain. God is the one who put the manual together for life. <laughs> the Bible is all about the, the best way to live life. So if you, <clears throat> if you don't obey the manual for your car, um, it says change the oil every 3,000. Some days, these new, these new ones now, every 5,000. What if you say, who do they think they are telling me to change the oil every 5,000 miles? I can do what I want. This is my life. This is my car. I paid for this car. And I'm going to change the oil every 50,000 miles. Huh. And you can do that, right? But somewhere at 15 or 20, enough is burned off where your engine gets ruined, falls out on the road. It might make you think a little bit about those guys who put the manual together. They know what it needs to run right. Bible's like that. It's a love letter. It has instructions in it, but it's so that everything runs smooth for you, your kids, your family, your relationships. It's so that all the beauty of what he has for you can be unleashed in your life so that it's not just about you and yours being blessed, but about others around you being blessed as well as they see Jesus in you. John MacArthur said this, and it's heavy. America wants God's blessing, but not God. Our nation has systematically pushed him out of the national consciousness, rejecting biblical morality, ignoring his word, and relying on the political and entertainment arenas for moral guidance. The result is we've become a bankrupt nation, financially, morally, and spiritually, as politicians, economists, and sociologists scrambled to find a cure for the nation's woes, God's provided America with his prescription in his word. But you know what we're saying right now? A nation that was founded on him? We don't really want your word anymore. Well, we believe it, but who can live it, right? What kind of God would ask you to do something he wouldn't help you to do? His grace enables us. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, The grace of God enables us to say no to all forms of ungodliness. God's grace empowers us to do the right thing even when we pray, when we're with him, when we're in the word and he strengthens us. And I'll tell you as a guy who once didn't care about the lines and crossed them that when I came back to Jesus, I didn't even know if I could live right. I was worried. What if I can't do it? But I met an awesome God who said, son, you don't have to do it by yourself because if you have a will, I have the power. That's what it takes, willpower. Your will and his power. And God would say to some of us in this fasting and prayer season, let go of that. Let go of that thing. You know it's bad, but you persist in it. Let go of it. James 4, 7, so humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter. What 
I thought God was the God of laughter. But he says in this circumstance, because of sin that persists and is allowed, let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. And here's the, here's the payoff for all this. Why would you do all that, right? It seems so morbid. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. There it is again. He's not trying to keep you and hold you back. He's trying to take you to a place of blessing like you've never known and maybe you haven't even felt is possible for you. As you think of sin that needs to be let go of, it it made me think of a story. I don't think I've ever told you this one before. <clears throat> Karen and I were just married. We've been married 31 years now. Karen's 37. It was just it was a wonderful marriage that... We lived at um, the Crestview Apartments at George Fox College, now university, in, in the first year of our marriage. And we had a heater that did not work. I mean, we pumped it full blast, and it, you know, we paid money, but no heat came out of the thing. And eventually we discovered, and they fixed it, you know, three months later. But we were freezing the first little bit of our, we were married on December 11th. So had a huge honeymoon to the Oregon coast for three days, and... <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> And then, you know, when you get married, you just take whatever stuff you can put together sometimes. Some of you, you know, we got married at 21 and 19. It was young, but it was the Lord, and we were happy, and we ended up with somebody's bed. I don't know who, but it was old. It was one of those old, old spring beds, but some family member gave us a bed, and, and I remember we used to argue at night about who would turn the, the light off because it was so cold. You'd have to get out from under the covers and go turn the light off, and, and this night I, I lost, and so I... I got up to turn the light out, and I turned the light out, but I had to run back, and I would jump in bed in the dark, right? So I turned the light out, and I come running, boom, I hit this old mattress, and, and then I try to lay down, and I can't move my leg. It feels weird. I'm not hurting, but I, my leg is stuck. I said, Karen, something's wrong, and I'm moving, and my leg is like glued to the bed. So Karen gets up and turns the light on. I'd hit the mattress so hard that one of the springs, those big round ones, had gone into my skin and circled around underneath. So when I was pulling, it was just, it was, it was in like six inches, but that round part, right? Here's the deal. In the darkness, I couldn't see which way to go. I had to, I literally had to unscrew myself from the bed. <laughs> but when she flipped the light on, we saw what it was, <clears throat> and Karen manipulated me around until it came out. The weird thing is it never, it never hurt me until later, and then I could feel that there was a little bit of a wound there. But I, I think our sin's kind of like that. We don't realize it, but pretty soon, if we're not careful, we get hooked and we're stuck. And we're in the darkness, and we don't know how to get out by ourselves. But if we'll flip the light on, suddenly we'll see how to get free when we never could see it before. And I believe that this time of prayer and fasting is just shining the light to say, God, show me how. I can't do this in the darkness. Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Say, so, okay, so we're bringing sin, but it's a throne of grace. He's a forgiving, loving God. Confidence so that we may receive and find grace to help us in time of need, in our time of need. And the third thought today, if we'll do these things, if we'll humble ourselves and pray and seek his face, if we'll turn from our wicked ways, this is his promise, then God will forgive our sins and heal our land. I believe that's the prescription for America. 
Say what you want, but the Bible says righteousness exalts a nation. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. You read that. I don't know if you thought about it before, but it's as if when we persist in our sin and we don't care and we say, God, you're okay with it and you love me no matter what, it's as if, if you look at verse 15, that he's not hearing our prayers very well because it's, it's hampering them. It's hindering them. It doesn't feel very sincere to him because it's not. When we say, I want to do what I want to do and then I want you to do what I want you to do. It's just not the right spirit. But when we humble ourselves and pray and when we turn from our wicked ways and ask him to help us in his grace and power enables us, then he will come and heal us. Now my eyes will be open and ears attentive to those prayers offered in that place. So as we go into 2.10, the new horizon. I told you last week, I'm your new pastor. My name is Stan. What's 2.10? It means February 10th. Two tens is 20. I've been here 20 years. We're having 20 days of prayer. We're having 20 new things. We're not gonna sit on our hands. God's gonna do some things. You'll learn more as we go. But if you wonder what 2.10 is, it's just the date, February 10th. Don't miss it. Because all the changes, most of them will hit on that day. But the main thing we're starting with is 20 days of prayer and fasting. Because we don't want to stay the same. I want you in your personal life to realize everything God has for you. It's about that. It's about you and your life and your children and your family. And I want this church to realize everything that God has for us. Would you pray with me? I'm asking you to pray. I'm asking you to come out tomorrow night at 11 o'clock. Some of you haven't seen 11 o'clock in a long time. But would, you, you know, here's my thought. I, you know, I don't know how many of you are going to fast and pray. All I can do is give the call. All I can do is try to motivate you, but the results really aren't up to me. They're up to you. But I was thinking about this and thinking, well, you know, it's coming out of Christmas and, you know, there's lots going on and they're busy. And, but I thought, what if, but what if just 100 people in this church... Look at serious. What if they started to pray for family members to be saved like they've never prayed before? What if they started to ask God to lead us and guide us, to unleash his presence among us, even just a hundred? There'd be radical impact. And I'm asking you, will you come out tomorrow night? And let's start it off. We'll pray from the 31st into the 1st, we're not going to bring you back on the morning of the 1st because we're going to pray into that morning. And then we're going to have prayer. You can see it in your bulletin. I believe it's last week it was on the second page on the insert inside for events. You can see that 6.30 every morning we're going to meet here. A pastor will lead in prayer. First 30 minutes we'll pray on our own. Then that pastor will gather you for the other 30 minutes. We'll pray as a group towards God's will being unleashed in our church, our schools, our community, our personal lives. I'm asking you to join me to do what the word says so that this could be that year of blessing and that harvest time coming. When we pray, God moves our hearts towards his priorities and then we move out and do his will. And our prayers make a difference. I want you to see how prayer made a difference right here. Watch this video. Well, in February the 27th of 1977, I received Jesus 
and began to pray earnestly. And for 35 years, uh, I have earnestly prayed for my brother Rick. And this Father's Day, he did receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And uh, I just want to encourage you guys to never give up because God is faithful. Before I came to the Lord, my life was very self-centered. Uh, all about me, uh, what I could accomplish, how I could get through life. Pretty sin-filled and sinful, and rejecting Jesus in every and any way I could. I was offered fellowship within numerous fashions for numerous people and always walked away as quickly as I could um, for over 35 years. Just kept turning my head and going in a different direction. Coming into Horizon for the first time, the first thing I was surprised about was the look in the people's eyes because I really do judge people from how what I see in their faces, especially their eyes. And everyone there was genuinely happy to be there. They were very warm towards me, open and accepting. And the people that I met there initially welcomed me with open arms. Uh, Pastor John is one specifically I can remember because uh, I was introduced to him that day for the first time. And he welcomed me like I was a member of the family. I was quite overwhelmed. And the other people that I met during the course of the day in the service, when you turn around and have people greet each other, were genuinely happy to say hello, welcome me into the church, and allow me to be there. That was really rather overwhelming. The sermon was wonderful. Everything was calm and soft. There was no overbearing religious feeling. It was just we're glad you're here and welcome. Please feel comfortable. Life with Jesus now is driven. I am driven daily to my Bible, uh, to study, to read, to try to get more knowledge about Him. Uh, I don't go anywhere without one. I walk around. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with this in my pocket. Uh, there's also one next to my bed. I start my day with it. I close my day with it. It's the biggest thing in my life right now. I am overwhelmed and humbled. Uh, overwhelmed that he would accept me with as much sin and background as I have in my life humbled, thankful for his sacrifice and his love and grace that he's given me to allow me to be part of this. Hey, when I think about Horizon, I think of all the people that have joined with me over the years to pray for Rick. And now when I look at him and I realize that he's part of our family, he's part of the eternal family and part of the Horizon family. I'm really genuinely thrilled, and I don't know how to explain that any better than to just say that it's, a, it's an answer to a ton of prayer and my deepest dreams.
Yeah, let's thank the Lord for that, huh? <clears throat> Prayer made a difference. I, I believe if we'll have a concentrated time of prayer, I believe the Lord wants that to happen a few thousand times among us. As crazy as that, you say, there are not that many people. That's because all the people coming aren't here yet. But God wants to move in your, in your family's life too. Think of the person in your family who's the one that nobody thinks will come. That was Rick. I mean, Dave believed, but not many other people were who knew him. And what if we pray and take these people before the Lord? What if we fast and say we're serious? What if the Lord moves our hearts to do the things that's exactly what they need to hear and see so that they might respond? What if that vice is broken because we pray? What if that power is unleashed? What if that relationship is healed? These are the things that prayer brings about. Jeremiah 29, 11, I'll close with this. I say this because I know what I am planning for you, says the Lord. I have good plans, good plans for you, not plans to hurt you. I will give you hope and a good future. Then you will call my name. You will come to me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will search for me, and when you search for me with all your heart, you will find me.